Ecclesiastes is uh, the book that we're in, and this morning we are in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. We're working our way through this book this year, uh, Ancient Book of Wisdom. Uh, this philosopher who we are calling the quester, uh, often in your translations he's called the teacher and we're calling him the quester because he's on this quest for knowledge, this quest, quest for meaning really, uh, meaning in life and, and answers and it seems to me that in the week we've just had with all of the rioting in London and other areas, this quest for meaning is even more relevant and profound. When you see such meaninglessness and just such random violence, it drives you back to questions of meaning and questions of where do you find purpose. You see so many people obviously lacking such purpose and, and such depth in their lives. And it's an opportunity, I think, for Christians and for the church to speak meaning and speak hope. You even find this week the, the British Prime Minister saying it's not a political problem, it is a moral problem. And we could go one step further and say it is a spiritual problem. There is a, a lack of meaning in the lives of people that would drive them to do this kind of thing. And so this book, with all its wrestling for meaning and its searching for meaning, really speaks into our modern circumstances. Where can we find meaning? Because otherwise we are just left saying it's meaningless. Life is meaningless. So why not riot? Why not loot? Why not deprive other people of things? So chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 23 this morning. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Ouch! That's... uh, (laughs) Half of you just closed your Bibles all of a sudden. What's, what's going on here? Oh, quick, let's finish the chapter. Verse 29, uh, this only have I found. God created humankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Man, that is tough. I actually think that with verse 28, that bizarre verse about not being able to find one upright woman, it's quite possible that he's using a metaphor. I think what he's saying is, the woman represents wisdom, just like the woman in verse 26 represents folly. You find in the book of Proverbs, both folly and wisdom are personified as women. You have the woman folly and you have lady wisdom. And I think he's saying he's been ensnared by the woman who represents folly and he's been unable to find the upright woman who is the woman of wisdom. So I don't think we need to conclude that he's this kind of uh, patriarchal, misogynist kind of character. I think, I hope, that he's being figurative and using a metaphor to say that he's, he's found folly, but he can't find woman, uh, wisdom. He can't, he's, he, he can't find wisdom. No, why did I? Oh, I got so far down that track, and then it all fell apart. He can't find wisdom, personified by the woman. So anyway, I don't want to linger on that, because uh, we're going to get into all kinds of problems. But this is, this is actually quite an important passage in Ecclesiastes. It's, it seems a little bit random and a little bit disturbing in some ways, but... 
This is, uh, this is a passage that gives us a bit of a glimpse into the quester's thought process and how he's thinking about uh, life and how he's thinking about his search for wisdom. It's, uh, to, use a, to use a motoring analogy, it's kind of like for the rest of the book, he's driving around looking at the scenery. But here in this passage, he pops the bonnet and he gives us a look inside the method that he's using in this quest for meaning and the thought process that he's going through in his search to try and find knowledge and to try and find wisdom in the world. So it's a very good place to try and get an insight into how does this guy's mind actually work and why does he keep concluding that everything is ultimately uh, meaningless. And you can see this, I think, most clearly by looking at the verbs that the quester uses in this passage to describe what he's actually doing. And this is something that you could do at home anytime, is just to go through this passage and look through, underline and circle, what are the key verbs that he's using to describe his search? And I've listed them out here for you. They are tested, determined, turned my mind, he says. Understand, he uses that word twice. Investigate, search out find, adding, adding one thing to another, discovered, searching, finding, found. That's just a list of the words. Now, any one of those by themselves might not be significant, but when you add them up, they give you a bit of a picture of how he's going about what he's doing. And the picture you get is that it's like he's playing the role of a detective. All of this investigating, all of this searching and this discovering, he's applying his mind to the problem. And he is using his powers of observation, very empirical. He's looking at life. That's why you find in Ecclesiastes time and time again, he says, I looked at life under the sun. I observed everything that was going on. He's very empirical. And then on the basis of these observations, he is analyzing the data. And then he is drawing conclusions about what life means. It's really like the philosophical equivalent of CSI if that helps at all. You know, CSI, it feels a bit old to me now, CSI, basically the same kind of plot all the time. But you find, you know, the first scene, they turn up and there's this murder scene and they're observing. They observe the, the body and what's been done to it, the position, the, you know, this blood stain over here and these footprints over here. It's very empirical. It's very observational. And then they analyze the data. There is this interpretation of the data that goes on and then they draw conclusions about who was the offender, who was the murderer. It's ba that's basically what the quester is doing. He's looking around, he's observing, and he's analyzing, and he's using his mind to draw conclusions. And it all feels quite modern, doesn't it? It feels, we're quite comfortable with this approach because it feels very contemporary. We're quite used to it. It feels quite sciencey. It feels very methodical. It feels very reasonable. It feels very logical to us. And that's because it is very modern. This approach that the quester is using, in a remarkable way, shares some similarities with the way that Western civilization, over the past few hundred years, has gone about its own search for meaning. The way in which we tend to think today about meaning and knowledge and logic and truth. There's a real parallel there. And this philosopher, the quester, shares some interesting similarities with another philosopher who lived in the 17th century. His name was René Descartes, famous philosopher. He was a Christian, Christian man, well-intentioned Christian. He had a pretty unfortunate haircut, but he was a good guy. <laughs> he was, you know, and, and, with, and with Descartes, his whole purpose was that he wanted to defend Christianity 
against skeptics. Uh, He wanted to try and find answers that he could defend the Christian faith with. And he was commissioned by a French cardinal of the day to come up with an infallible way of proving the existence of God. Imagine getting that assignment. You know, you've got to come up with the, the absolute undoubtable way of proving the existence of God. That was his big commission. And so what he did is started by clearing away everything that could possibly be doubted. Anything that, any truth claim, any statement that could possibly be doubted, Descartes did away with it, excluded it from his, from his search. And he, and he tried to find the one foundation, the one sure platform that was absolutely undoubtable and infallible upon which true and certain knowledge about the world and about God could be built. And that's where you get his famous saying, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. You've all heard of that. But what Descartes is saying in that statement is that the one foundation that is absolutely undoubtable is the fact that we're thinking beings, that we are thinking subjects. The mind, the thought process of the mind is the one foundation that cannot be doubted, and therefore that's the foundation we can start to build other knowledge upon. And the genius of what Descartes came up with, whether you like him or not, the brilliance of that suggestion is that it even has a way of absorbing doubt itself. Because if you doubt that statement, that's evidence that you're thinking, and therefore you've proven the statement. Do you see? If, if, even, even by doubting, doubt proves you're thinking. Therefore, you're a thinking subject, and therefore we're back to the same premise. You are thinking, therefore you are existing. So that was a pretty genius move. He comes up with this idea. And what has happened since then? In a whole lot of ways that Descartes himself probably wouldn't have condoned, that has become a foundation for the way we think and the way we pursue truth and the way we pursue knowledge. You don't even have had to have heard of René Descartes to be thinking in some ways, even as you're sitting here this morning, that are heavily, heavily influenced by him. The major thing that has happened as a result of Descartes is that the human mind has become the center of all knowledge. That the way to knowledge, the starting point to knowledge, the starting point to meaning in life is the human mind. And this is where it sounds uncannily like what the quester is discovering in Ecclesiastes, that his own mind is the starting point for knowing and thinking and discovering. It's also the legacy that Descartes bequeathed to us, the mind. We could call this the self-directed approach to knowledge, that it starts with me and it starts with my ability to think and to interpret the situation. And the self-directed approach to knowledge begins by assuming complete objectivity, This is what the quester is trying to do. This is what science tries to do today. All kinds of fields of inquiry, we try to be completely objective. So you've got to put aside your bias. You've got to be free from prejudice. You've got to be free from preconceptions. You've got to put aside your religious tradition. You've got to put aside your cultural tradition. You've got to put aside your socioeconomic background. You just have to be an objective observer of the data. You know, the icon of this is the scientist in the white coat. You know, we have this image of the perfectly neutral, perfectly objective, perfectly unbiased and impartial scientist in the white coat who is just clinically observing the facts and drawing conclusions. That's, that's the epitome 
of the self-directed approach. We don't bring bias, we have to be totally objective. That's what the quest is trying to do. That's what Descartes was trying to do. And then on the basis of this objectivity, we use our minds, we use whatever technologies are available to us to try and arrive at truth. And by truth, what we tend to mean is certainty. What we really want when we search for truth and meaning in life is certainty. We want to know what is absolutely, infallibly true. That's what the quester wanted. That's what Descartes was searching for. What is certain? And then we build onto that other certain things. And anything that might be able to be doubted is thrown aside. It's kind of like that program Mythbusters. Any Mythbusters fans? You know. It, it, so the whole program is about taking urban legends, taking myths, taking things that we're not sure whether that really stacks up or not, and putting them through this kind of rigorous process to figure out what is certain, what is absolutely true. So can you open a car door when the car is sinking underwater? Well, you know, we're not sure. Let's put it to the test. So there's these control tests and there's computer modeling and there's systematic experimenting so that they can try and figure out what is certain. Is this just a myth or is this reality? Is this certainty? And then the final stage in this self-directed approach, once we've figured out what is certain, once we've figured out what is infallible and cannot be doubted, then we can exercise faith. Once we know what is certain, we can put faith in those things. Because nobody wants to go putting faith in anything that's not completely certain, right? Back in the 1980s, there was a, a group, a movement called the Jesus Seminar. It was a group of 150 biblical scholars who met together several times to study the Gospels, to study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And their goal, as they stated it, was to figure out through historical analysis and study of the text which words of Jesus were authentic to Jesus and which of them were made up by other people, which of them were made up by the writers of the Gospels themselves. How do we know what are authentically the words of Jesus? And they got a lot of coverage in the media for this because they used a method, as 150 of them came together, they voted. They, they literally went through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they voted using these colored beads. So a red bead meant that they believed Jesus definitely said this. A pink bead meant he might have said this. A, a blue bead meant he probably didn't say this. And a black bead meant he definitely didn't say this. And so one by one, as they went through, they would vote. And then they would, would some method of accumulating all of these votes, and they published a book, which has the gospel. It's called the Five Gospels because they included the Gospel of Thomas, which is bizarre because it wasn't written until hundreds of years later. But anyway, they, the Five Gospels, they go through, and you can, you can buy this on Amazon, and it is colored. So you can see the red and the pink and the blue and the black, and apparently which of the words of Jesus are authentic. So they are using a methodology that's very similar to the quester, and very similar to Descartes. We've got to try and get certainty about every word and every sentence, because once we've got certainty, then we know what we can put faith in. And the irony of that whole approach is there was actually very little left to put faith in. In fact, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, in the book that the Jesus Seminar put out, the only part that's read, the only part they could be sure was actually said by Jesus was our Father. That's it. 
All the rest was various other colors of you know, varying degrees of certainty and uncertainty. Only our father was red, so you don't end up with much to put faith in at all. Now, as Christians, it's quite difficult to wade through all this, isn't it? And even as you're listening, you're sort of thinking, well, what, what do I think about this? In some ways, you might feel like, well, this self-directed approach to knowledge sounds like it works on Mythbusters, but it doesn't sound like it works for the Jesus Seminar. We want to be okay with it being used for science, for mathematics, for the hard sciences, but can you really apply the self-directed method to philosophy, theology, biblical studies? Is that really legitimate? Let me just caution you that this approach is really, really dangerous. To go down the road of saying there are some areas where you can apply the self-directed method and some areas like Christianity where you can't is incredibly dangerous. This is exactly what happened following Descartes is there began to be this split between the objective world of facts, science, mathematics, empirical, observational stuff, and then the subjective world of faith and feelings and intuition, and that was the area where the whole Christian faith, along with every other faith, is placed. And this is the dominant reason why the Bible has been displaced as the major story within our culture. This is the reason why Christianity has lost its centrality in our culture, because we have a split in disciplines that are considered to be objective and disciplines, philosophy, theology, faith, and so on, where it's just feelings and it's just subjective. So faith has become privatized. It has become irrelevant. It has become your personal little journey, but not something that you can speak with any objectivity about. So we've got to be really, really careful about going down this road of dualisms where we create a split world and say, well, a self-directed method works in some areas, but it doesn't work in other areas. We shoot ourselves in the foot when we do that because we lose our own voice. We are lumped in the category of the subjective and the feelings and the intuition, but nothing really to say to society within the public sphere. More commonly, I think, what tends to happen, including for Christians, is that we just absorb the self-directed approach, the same approach that the quester uses the same approach that Descartes uses. We just absorb it, and we use it for every area of our lives. It's just our culture. It's just how we think. It's how we work. It's how we study. This is just what it is. And so we apply it in exactly the same way to thinking about faith and thinking about God and thinking about uh, religion. This is where you get the whole field of Christian apologetics, which tries to be as objective as possible in areas maybe like creation, evolution, tries to be as objective as possible, just looks objectively at the fossil record, looks objectively at whatever, carbon dating, looks objectively at, at life, and then tries to get certainty. And this is the thing we feel we need so much is certainty. We've got to have certainty. We've got to have certainty about Genesis 1 and 2 and the exact details of the creation story. We've got to have certainty about the biblical inerrancy, that there are no errors in the Bible. And so where we do find them, you know, we find where Luke made a, a, a mistake of, of a particular year or a particular landmark or something, we try and find these, these explanations for why there can't possibly be any errors there because we have to have total certainty in order to have faith. We feel as Christians a lot of the time that we have to try and get certainty about everything in order to have faith. We come up with these proofs for the existence of God. 
apparently these, these logical, you know, if you just work through these steps of logic, just purely objectively, then you can prove with certainty the existence of God so that we can put faith in God because we've got to have certainty in order to have faith. And the problem, I think, is that we don't end up with nearly as much certainty as we think we want. And so many Christians are plagued by doubt and are plagued by disillusionment because they don't have absolute certainty about their faith. And they feel like to doubt is wrong and to doubt is bad because they've been told ever since Descartes that doubt is a terrible thing and what you need to have is absolute certainty in order to have faith. And because a lot of the time we just don't have this kind of scientific certainty. We feel like we don't really have much of a basis on which to put our faith. So we're left in this world of doubt, in this world of discouragement. And we wonder if we might just be second-class Christians because we're not as sure about things and certain about things as other people seem to be. There is, within the biblical story, an entirely other approach to knowing and to searching and to discovering meaning in life. A way out of this method that the quester gives us, which ultimately does end in meaninglessness. Even if you look at our culture today, for all of its pursuit of certainty over the past 300 years, we end up in a culture today where nobody can really be certain of everything. And truth has become relative. And nobody's sure about what truth is anymore. It's all just your truth, my truth, and personalized truth. For all of our endeavors to find certainty, we've, it's almost like we've found the opposite. We've found we can't be certain about anything. Turn over for a moment to John chapter 8. As Jesus speaks here, as he goes about his teaching, as he goes about his life, he reveals in a couple of succinct phrases in John 8, 31 and 32, a new method, a new way of knowing, a new starting point for knowing what we know that starts to get us out of this hopeless, self-directed approach to knowledge that just seems to leave us in confusion. Jesus says, John 8 verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's interesting that Jesus begins in these verses with faith. He's speaking to people who had believed in him. That word believe is it's the same word where we get faith from. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciples. He's speaking to people who are following him. He's speaking to people who are exercising faith in him. He says, through that faith, through believing in me, through following me, then you will know the truth. See, in the self-directed approach, faith comes at the end. You've got to have certainty and objectivity, and then you figure out what to put faith in. Jesus begins in precisely the opposite way. He begins with faith. He says, if you want to know truth, if you want to understand meaning, it begins by believing and it begins by knowing me. Faith in Jesus is the starting point. Not our own minds, but faith in the living Lord Jesus. And I know that might sound to you like it's hopelessly subjective, that you've just given up all objectivity and you just now become completely biased, what happened to being neutral, what happened to being just impartial, it just sounds like you're a completely subjective person. And that's the point. We all are. 
This illusion that we can just be purely objective in life and and look at things with some unbiased uh, viewpoint is a total myth. The myth of the scientist in the white coat, the purely uh, neutral and impartial observer, is just a myth. Even the guys on Mythbusters are heavily, heavily subjective. They rely, they put faith in the instruments and the technologies that they are using. They build conclusions on the back of hundreds of years of scientific research. They use all kinds of assumptions. They use intuition. They use creativity as they figure out how to move forward. It's all heavily, heavily subjective. None of life is as objective as we'd like to think. We're all looking at truth from a certain vantage point. We're all looking at truth through a certain lens. The question is, are you looking at the world through a lens that enables you to see it rightly? Are you looking at the world through a lens that enables you to see life and see truth as it is? And what God offers us is not just more facts and more information about life. He offers us a lens through which to see life. And that lens is faith in Christ. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses, not just shining a spotlight and trying to find more light and trying to find the way. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses where the whole world starts coming into focus. This is what faith in Jesus does. This is why St. Augustine said, I believe in order that I may understand. The self-directed approach and the approach of Ecclesiastes effectively flips that around and says, I understand in order that I may believe. We try and understand our way to God. We try and figure our way to God. Augustine said, and I think it's just right, I believe in order that I may understand. Faith precedes believing, uh, knowledge. Faith precedes truth. Faith is the prerequisite for finding truth. Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you are my disciples, then you will know the truth. We discover truth through faith in Christ. And that faith is personal. It's not just believing about Jesus. It's a relationship. It's leaning into relationship with the one in whom true meaning is found. Jesus is the key to all knowledge. Not just about philosophy, theology, Christian studies, but key to all knowledge. He's the one through whom all things were created, to whom all things one day will return. He's the Logos, the divine mind of God. He is the key and the clue to understanding all things. He is the starting point for true knowledge, leaning into that relationship with Him. It's an invitation to relationship. Not an invitation to a body of knowledge. It's an invitation to relationship with Jesus. And in the context of that relationship, we put on these new glasses through which then we can see truth because we start to see the world as it truly is. And that doesn't mean we don't do brilliant science. That doesn't mean we suddenly give up our minds and we stop. This is what Christians are accused of so much. You know, it's just all about Jesus and and loving Jesus. And you've just, you know, Christians become the enemy of science. Through the lens of faith, we can do brilliant research. We can do brilliant inquiry. We can use our minds. It's simply that the starting point of all our inquiry and the starting point of our pursuit of knowledge and meaning in life is not our own intellect but it's God's revelation in Jesus Christ. The starting point is the divine Logos, the the Christ who has come among us and has revealed truth to us. We operate within that framework. And some of the best scientists have been Christians who have done just this, who have seen their efforts as an uncovering of the world that God has created 
and seen in creation itself, little signs of God's own glory, things that point us back to God. Because we start to see the world as it is, we see a world that is good, but a world that is broken through sin, and yet a world that is grace-filled because of Jesus, and also a world that is yet to be renewed when Jesus returns. All of this gives us a story. All of this shapes a certain framework within which we can meaningfully pursue truth and knowledge and use our minds, but use them in the service of the Creator, not in this arrogant, autonomous way where we think, through my own investigation, I'm somehow going to arrive at truth. I believe in order that I may understand, in order that I may discover the truth about the world. And this truth, says says Jesus, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's a wonderful freedom that comes from being able to put on the lens of faith, begin to see the world with new eyes, see reality. And the freedom is not just the freedom of relationship with Jesus. It's a freedom from having to be certain about everything. And this, I think, is something Christians themselves need to be set free from. We have placed such a premium on certainty. We have to be absolutely certain about the existence of God, certain about the inerrancy of the Bible, certain about this and that. And we feel that unless we've achieved that, we can't have faith. Jesus frees us from that. He begins, he starts us with faith. And then he says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You don't have to have certainty. Because as Paul said, in this present life, it's like we're looking through a faded and cracked mirror. We're looking through a dark mirror and we're seeing just a a piece of all the knowledge that there is. You don't have to have certainty because the certainty is not in you, it's in Jesus. We just see a little piece of knowledge and we know that one day we will know fully just as we're fully known. We know that one day we will have all the answers and all the certainty that we need. But what we have in the present is just this little gradual unfolding of truth. Our knowledge is not absolute. Our knowledge is not perfect. Our knowledge in the present is not certain. And that's okay. We know enough to place our faith in. We know enough to have conviction. But we don't know all things and we don't need to. And we don't need to have absolute certainty about everything in order to place our faith in Christ. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, faith alone is certainty. Everything but faith is subject to doubt. Christ alone is the certainty of faith. You can almost hear him turning Descartes upside down. Descartes would have said, knowledge alone, the mind alone is certainty. Everything but the mind The thinking mind is subject to doubt. Bonhoeffer says everything but faith is subject to doubt. A new starting point for human knowledge. A new starting point for our inquiry of the truth. And one that doesn't bind us up in this futile need to have certainty about every single thing. There's a freedom from that. And that means there's a freedom to doubt. Descartes would never have admitted it. But we have, through Jesus, the certainty and the permission, and the freedom to doubt. That might sound counterintuitive, because we've been told for so long the mission of the Christian life is to get rid of doubt, get rid of it so we have certainty. I would say, let's give ourselves the freedom to doubt. Let's give ourselves the freedom to question, and to wonder, and to not be sure about a whole lot of things. 
and take the burden off our shoulders of feeling so guilty and so condemned when you struggle with doubt. Christians feel terrible for doubting, and it's time to give that up. Faith and doubt are dance partners within a relationship with God. They are two sides of the same coin, both healthy, and I would say even both necessary, because doubt reminds you you don't have all the answers. Doubt reminds you the certainty is not in your own mind. It's in Jesus. I was talking to a guy a few years ago, a friend who was wrestling with doubt, had huge questions about his faith, and for him it was all coming out of the creation evolution thing, and he just didn't have the certainty that evolution wasn't true, and, and he was you know, persuaded that it was, and he was just trying to figure things out, and the date of the earth, and all of this stuff, and it was just absolutely tying him up in doubt, raising huge questions, and he just couldn't find his way through it. And I remember at the time, my whole approach was trying to provide the certainty, and trying to provide the answers, and and trying to build this foundation for him to give him some certainty, so that he could be sure of things, because in my mind, I was still with Descartes. I was still, you've got to have certainty, because then faith will come. And I think if I'd had my time again, I would have given up that approach and encouraged him to lean into relationship with the one in whom certainty is found. Even though it sounds subjective and even though it doesn't sound sciencey in the way we might understand science, it is truth and it is meaning because it's in the context of relationship with Christ that understanding comes. You've got to give up that idea you're going to have certainty about everything and give yourself the freedom to doubt. Those of you struggling with doubt this morning, stop worrying about it. Stop beating yourself up for it. Stop feeling like you've got to have certainty before you can have faith. Start with faith. Start by just leaning into and embracing the resurrected Jesus Christ who is among you and with you and within you. And trust that as you believe, gradually the understanding will come. Not certainty, but a true way of seeing the world. I wonder if Jesus had been talking to the quester, what he would have said to him. If the quester had spelled out his method, told Jesus how he was going about this search for truth, I suspect that Jesus probably would have said to him the same thing he said to many other people. Follow me. Because in those two words is the starting point to real knowledge, isn't it? Follow me. Not here are the answers, not here's the certainty, but follow me. It's a summons to an invitation. It's an invitation to an abundant life. Follow me, because faith in Jesus is the starting point for true knowing and true meaning. Faith in Jesus is what will free us, free us from having to have certainty, free us to be able to doubt in healthy ways, and free us, most importantly, to know personally and deeply the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that there is certainty in you, but not in our own minds. And I pray for all those who are wrestling with doubt and struggling with certainty and feeling guilty because they don't have all the answers. Lord, set us free from thinking that we have to and set us free to simply run into your arms. And I thank you, Lord, that on the other side of faith, we can use our minds, and we're not giving up intellect, and we're not giving up inquiry, and we're not giving up the 
the rigor of trying to figure things out. But Lord, we want all of that to follow faith. We want all of that to be a result of faith and not a requirement for having faith. So set us free, Jesus, from needing certainty as much as we do. Help us to be okay with our doubt, to trust you with our doubt, and to lean into that life that you promise us within which we can work away at doubt, sometimes finding more questions than answers, but knowing that you give us a new way of seeing the world, a way that leads us into life and truth and meaning. We thank you, Jesus. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.